Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 126 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the business of Star Wars, and I'm joined by two guests. So first up, we've got Chris Taylor. He's the deputy editor of Mashable, one of the world's largest independent news sites. He's covered the intersection of business and culture for two decades as a writer and editor for Time, Business 2.0, Fortune Small Business, and Fast Company. His new book is called How Star Wars Conquered the Universe, The Past, Present, and Future of a Multi-Billion Dollar Franchise. So Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, David. It's good to be here. And also joining us today is Brian Stillman. He's written articles and produced videos for Guitar World, Future Music, Revolver, and The New York Post. He's also directed two documentaries exploring one of his favorite hobbies, toy collecting. His first film, Toys R Us, A Revolution in Plastic, focuses on the world of designer vinyl toys. And his new film, Plastic Galaxy, profiles collectors and creators of Star Wars toys. So, Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we previously discussed Star Wars all the way back in Episode 11. And in that show, we mostly focused on Star Wars from a fan perspective. Why we love Star Wars, which movie's the best, nitpicks we have, what went wrong with the prequels, that sort of thing. So if you want to hear that sort of a discussion, definitely go check out episode 11. But I thought that today we'd try something a bit different. So in addition to being just really good movies, Star Wars is also this financial juggernaut that George Lucas recently sold to Disney for $4 billion. So today we're going to focus on some of the financial factors that shape Star Wars and what effect that success has had on the way that other movies get made and marketed. So Chris, let's start off with you, and have you just tell us a little bit about what was the budget like for the first Star Wars movie, and how much money was it expected to make? Well, the budget kept bouncing around. I mean, it, it ended up officially at $8.5 million, I believe, and then uh, overran that by about $3 million, largely because uh, ILM spent so much money, as as they should, you know, doing this groundbreaking work in special effects you would you would expect it to cost a few million but the i believe that but their official budget was only two million uh which is just insane considering the the place in history that they have now um but you know the 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 problem was and a lot of folks at fox said this and uh george lucas has said this gary kurtz the producer on star wars said this no one had any idea what this sort of movie was supposed to cost uh, it, you know, as, as Kurt said, it was a real finger in the wind time. Uh, you know, they, they had one budget breakdown that put it at seven million. Uh, another said the special effects alone will cost seven million. Um, and I think initially, right back in the beginning, when, when Lucas was first pitching this script to Fox, I don't think that he went above four million in his estimation of, of how much this would cost. But of course, nobody knew. And, and uh, his original scripts would have cost, uh, you know, they're, they're so jam-packed with action and special effects, they would have cost at least twice the budget of the movie. Uh, but what's important to remember, I think, is that this, you know, even $11 million, even the actual amount of money that it cost to make Star Wars was just insanely cheap for the time. I mean, this this was like almost a low-budget independent film. Uh, it was cheaper than the average studio comedy. And, uh, and Lucas often liked to say that he made a $20 million movie on, on a $10 million budget. Um, so obviously it would, it would never be that cheap again. Hmm. 
Uh, Brian, do you have anything you want to add to that? Um, but you know, I think the fact that Lucas was able to do it, I think those sort of restrictions are one of the things that makes Star Wars what it is today. You know, people like to talk about the sort of current atmosphere. You know, you can do anything. There's all this money. There are all these special effects. There are all these things, and they kind of you know, in Star Wars, they it has something special. It's something we love. And I think a lot of that comes from those restrictions, budgetary and otherwise. You know, it forces people like Lucas and all the people who worked on the film to kind of find creative ways to do it instead of ways that involve just throwing money at the problem. And I think that ends up reading on screen. I think that's very much part of why it's such a powerful movie today. It feels like an indie flick that just happens to have the most amazing eye-popping stuff in it. Yeah, I mean, my my favorite stat about it is that is the fifty thousand dollars that they had to beg uh, Fox for to just to film that scene in the in the Rebel uh, blockade runner at the very start of the movie, uh, where they're just really stretching their resources so thin uh, that that's that's what they had to ask for. And of course, it's it's the reason why the Jabba the Hutt scene was not in the original movie and had to wait until the special edition. Um, you know, Lucas would have shot it if he'd had the budget. And of course, it's, you know, given the eventual magnitude of Star Wars' success, it's kind of hard to imagine now that anyone might have ever thought it was going to bomb. But that's one thing you talk about in your book, Chris, is that they really had no expectations for this movie doing well at all. The studio did. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard. And it, I, I would venture to say impossible these days with our cineplexes so full of uh, superhero movies. And, uh, you know, it's it, it just it's so clear what makes money, and, and we love this popcorn fare. We love special effects, um, but back then it was really seen as a children's movie. Uh, it was really thought that children's movies could not make money, science fiction movies could not make money. Um, you know, and, and what you've really got to look at is the movies that were at the top of the rankings at that time for uh, you know best-selling uh, movies of all time or m- most tickets sold. It was. Uh, Gone with the Wind was was the all time champion, I believe. Adjusted for inflation, it still is. Um, you know, it was uh, the Sound of Music. It was Doctor Zhivago. It was the James Bond stuff. It was, uh, you know, uh, Jaws had only recently come along and uh, and become the first movie to make more than a hundred million dollars at the box office. Um, but even that was sort of seen as more in line with the disaster movies of the seventies. You know, the, the earthquakes and the, the towering inferno, that sort of thing. Um, you know, so no, nobody really saw that as heralding, uh, a new dawn of, of science fiction and special effects. That stuff was really just for geeks. And then uh, behind the scenes with the, with the marketing of it, you know, I talk about, uh, Charlie Lippicott, the marketing manager of Star Wars, uh, putting into effect the, the Mike Kaplan plan. And Mike Kaplan was the guy who did the publicity for, um, for 2001 and had wanted to do all these things that Lippincott ended up doing, like, you know, going to the, uh, the world science fiction conference and, uh, you know, going out and, and meeting the nerds in their, in their home territory. Uh, so it was very much, it was, it was, uh, it was standing on the shoulders of 2001 in many ways. And of course would not have been, the budget would not have been approved for Star Wars in 1975 had not 2001 only just made its money back in uh, in re-release at that time. Okay, well, I mean, Brian, I did want to talk to you about Plastic Galaxy, and we've mentioned the marketing and um, 
uh, Chris in his book talks about how there were action figures for, I think, Planet of the Apes, but it wasn't a big thing at all. Um, how, like, why did anyone want to make action figures for Star Wars and how did they end up becoming so popular? Well, you know, everything I've read, you know, and I didn't get to interview George Lucas. I would have loved to, but everything I read, I mean, here's a guy who grew up with Flash Gordon. He grew up with Buck Rogers. He originally wanted to make Flash Gordon. That's the movie that they were going for. I couldn't get the license, decides to make Star Wars or writes his own, essentially. And those things were heavily, heavily licensed, not in the same way, not with action figures, but you had little mini lead figures and you had toy guns and all sorts of things. And I think from Lucas's point of view, there was, it's what he grew up with. It's what he wanted. Um, and Chris might be able to expand on this, but, um, I think that sort of played into this idea of getting back to that whole feeling of serials, of fun science fiction, of fun adventure that he remembered having when he was a kid. As to why it was successful, I think a lot of it is the right time, the right place, and the right movie. You have a movie that lends itself to imaginative adventure. It lends itself to playing in the backyard, to embodying these characters and stuff. And the way to do it is through the action figures. Kenner was smart enough to release a massive line of figures, including the ones that only make the briefest of appearances in the movie. What that allows kids to do is create their own stories, go in directions that Star Wars never could dream of going. And that kind of lends itself to repeated play value. It encourages kids to go out there, get as many figures as possible, and create their own world. Something like Planet of the Apes, which only released a few figures at the time, what are you going to do with it? It's like, wow, I have a bunch of gorillas. They all kind of <laughs> look the same. They all are basically human characters. They might look like apes, but they're basically human in, in terms of how they act, what they do. The movie doesn't create a world where kids can feel comfortable kind of carving out their own niche. It's this very post-apocalyptic scenario. It's all been sort of devolved in terms of science. There's no no sense of wonder in that movie. Well, Star Wars is nothing but sense of wonder. And when you come home, you want to take that with you. And I think the action figures allowed it. You know, one guy told me, you see the movie once, you know, most likely if you're a kid. But when you come home, you play with those figures every day. And when you close your eyes, he said, I didn't see Mark Hamill when I thought about Luke Skywalker. I thought about that little action figure. That's the way he looked. And I think that's what the toys were able to do. They were able to capture that kind of wonder and let you take it home with them. Well, but Kenner was totally surprised by the scale of the success of the figures, right? You want to tell us about oh, yeah. the the, hol the holiday pack and just some of the, the crazy stuff yeah. that happened? So that's the thing. You know, we talk about this in hindsight, but the truth is, no one had any high hopes. Um, there was no sense that the movie was going to be a big hit, as we as we said. Um, science fiction didn't last. The thing about movies, you didn't license with them because they were there and gone pretty quickly. They didn't last very long. And unlike a TV show, which gives you an advertisement for that toy every week, every time it airs, this, you know, once the movie's gone, there's nothing in theory to compel you to go buy the toys. Um, so Kenner approached the whole thing with easy-to-produce, inexpensive-to-produce objects like games, uh, paper products, things that were cheap. And when they saw how successful Star Wars was pretty quickly, they realized they had to have toys. Well, it takes a year. At the time, it took about a year to get a toy onto the stands. 
Um, they realized they'd never make it in, to, in time for Christmas. Star Wars came out in May. It's only a few months away. So what they did was uh, it's kind of the brilliance of a guy named Ed Schiffman sort of pitched this idea um, to Kenner and to their president, Bernie Loomis. He said, what if we release a redemption kit, a, uh, a, an essentially an empty box? It was called the Early Bird Certificate Package. And you got an empty cardboard envelope. Uh, and in it, it had a little certificate you can mail away. And then Kenner would send you the figures when they were ready, which turned out to be around February or March. So for Christmas, you'd run downstairs, tear open the wrapping paper, and you'd get a piece of cardboard. But you got the promise of four figures uh, down the road. Luke, Leia, Chewbacca, R2. And then the, the early bird certificate package also opened up and became a little display stand for them. You got a bunch of little pegs and some stickers. Um, but it was Kenner attempting to kind of cover themselves for not being able to have action figures out in time for Christmas uh, by by offering them. And it ended up being a, a reasonably successful thing. I mean, they sold a lot of them. It wasn't as big as Star Wars products down the road would become, but uh, I think it lit the fire uh, pretty successfully. Hmm. Well, no, and Chris, in your book, you suggest that actually it was the sale of these action figures that enabled Empire Strikes Back to be funded, that it never could have happened without that. Could you mm. tell us about that? Yeah, well, there, there were definitely a lot of uh, points during Empire Strikes Back when Lucas was basically running out of money because he he put up the collateral himself. It was all his winnings from from Star Wars, and uh, and he was just basically doubling down. Were by doing uh, Empire Strikes Back, and there was a loan with Bank of America. Um, that loan was suspended when, uh, I believe, when Lucasfilm payroll hit a million dollars a week, and that just sort of triggered some, uh, you know, automatic stop uh, on some new, some new manager's bureaucratic system. And uh, you know, and, and so they they des there was a lot of times when they desperately needed an influx of new cash. And, uh, one of those times was, was just the, you know, the, the success that they had, uh, in, I believe, uh, Christmas of 78 was sort of the crucial season where they, they made way more money than they expected out of the figures. Uh, they even made money out of the figures after the disaster of the holiday special. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Star Wars holiday special, as opposed to the early bird special, uh, you know, which was, was just terrible. I think they, Kenner was going to produce some uh, Wookiee figures, uh, so so people could replicate the the adventures of Chewie's family uh, in the Star Wars Holiday Special. I don't think that went anywhere, but uh, but actually, I saw prototypes of those ah. in filming the movie, so they at least pitched the idea. Yeah, so it never actually they never actually produced them. They just got no, as far as. No. <laughs> but it sort of gets I back know. to the it gets back to the Planet of the Apes problem that you were talking about. It's like, well, these guys all just sort of look the same, and you can't really have this <laughs> yeah. differentiated yeah. Uh, version of it. So yeah, you know, it, it's it's kind of poetic that all of these kids in Christmas of seventy eight acting out the further adventures of Luke Skywalker actually almost literally funded the future adventures of Luke Skywalker. Um, and, and, and that's just, you know, it's, it's a beautiful sort of Hollywood worthy moment, I think, when, when they eventually do the movie of the making of the Star Wars, uh, movies. This, this will be, this will be a key scene. What's funny is Kenner was still a little behind the ball with Empire. So even as Star Wars toys were funding Empire, the Empire figures, um, Kenner 
almost dropped the ball in that one too. It really wasn't until Jedi, uh, from what everyone told me, it wasn't until Jedi that they finally were like, okay, we've got our things planned. We know it's going to happen when this movie comes out. Because no one expected the sequel to be a success. It's like, okay, Star Wars was great. We didn't see that coming. But, you know, rarely are sequels as good as the original. You know, I mean, Godfather 2, notwithstanding. Um, and, of course, it was great. And Kenner, once again, was scrambling. Not as badly, but once again, they were saying, oh, man, okay, got to catch up. Yeah, the licensing world up. in general, just the licensing world just took an awful long time to catch on. And... um I mean, even Lucas himself, you know, one of my favorite facts about this is he didn't even imagine uh, action figures would, would be a big thing. All, all he saw when he was first thinking about products that might emerge from Star Wars was an R2-D2 cookie jar and, <laughs> yeah. and a, a Wookiee sort of dog breed mug of the kind the that mug, were very, yeah. very popular. I mean, both well, of which eventually got made. Guns. Yeah. He really wanted ray guns because he had the Flash Gordon gun as a kid. And I know Kenner wasn't going to do guns. You know, they had this other stuff and he came to them and said, gotta do a ray gun. They were going to do, blaster. they were going to do inflatable lightsabers, which they I just... did do one. They did do one. <laughs> that was the first, that was the first toy lightsaber. It was inflatable. It came with a repair kit. So they knew <laughs> it was, a, it was like potentially fraught with disaster as toys go. Um, but they put one out. It was one of my favorite toys as a kids. Do not hate on the inflatable lightsaber. <laughs> I will hang up right now. <laughs> I want to play with the inflatable lightsaber. So much better it's than awesome. So it's much awesome. You know, I, I talk to people who use flashlights, and but they they'd have to sort of stop. You know, they'd have to go into a dark room <laughs> and they'd have to stop the flashlight <laughs> when it hit the other the other light. So no, inflatable sounds cool. Well, uh, Chris, speaking of Empire Strikes Back, one thing that just absolutely blew my mind in your book is to what degree the story of Empire Strikes Back was being shaped by business considerations. So. You know, Mark Hamill had been injured in this car accident, and that seems to have made George Lucas. Oh, and then uh, Harrison Ford wasn't. It wasn't clear Harrison Ford wasn't gonna, was going to come back. Wasn't clear if Alec Guinness was going to come back, and so George Lucas seems to have sort of like put a double for every character into Empire Strikes Back, and ended the movie with uh, Han Solo uh, potentially gone um, for for many of these practical. You know, business decision reasons. Yeah, I basically call it insurance. I mean, you know, we, we, we forget that Lucas was, you know, a good businessman because he had the experience of his father who owned this uh, stationery and toy store in Modesto that he built up into basically this, this regional powerhouse and sold to, uh, to, uh, 3M, I think, uh, at, uh, or, you know, worked for 3M and sold to Xerox. I can't remember exactly which way around it was. But, you know, he, he grew up with this uh, business empire all around him. So he knew how you do it. He knew how you, how you work it. And, uh, you know, he was right after Star Wars, he was brimming with all these business ideas. And he talked about maybe I'll open a low sugar ice cream parlor, you know, because he was, he was, uh, he was diabetic. And he's like, all, all these diabetic people deserve low sugar ice cream. Uh, you know, and I'll sell burgers and, uh, you know, and he had the, that whole super snipe, uh, art gallery, um, that, uh, that he, you know, he co-funded with, uh, Edward Summer, who, uh, unfortunately recently passed away in New York. Um, you know, so, so he had these notions of business ventures and he very much treated the Empire Strikes Back as, as an ongoing business concern in that respect. You know, you have to have insurance for, you know, if Mark Hamill, God forbid, has another car crash, uh, what are we going to do? So, well, let's drop in a mention of Luke's sister, who is not Leia at this point, being across the galaxy and, you know, and, and that sort of became 
Yoda talking about the other. That was what it referred to. You know, Lando was the insurance against Han Solo. Um, you know, so you have all of these and, and that you start to introduce the Emperor with the idea that he would become the main villain and Vader would just be killed off in the next film. And you sort of start to focus on, on the big bad boss. Uh, cause Lucas still didn't quite get that Vader was as big a deal as he was. This was, of course, before he came up with the I am your father revelation. Um, so yeah, it really is, uh, is a case of businessman buying insurance. Well, it's funny because in Star Wars, Tarkin was the original big bad of the film and, uh, he had a much bigger part in early drafts and during, I guess I'd heard it was during test screenings, but at some point they came to understand Vader was much more of a, a crowd pleaser than Tarkin. It was really and, uh, only once the film was out, so only once you saw the complete ensemble of, of Ben Burt breathing through his scuba mask and James L. Jones's voice. Before that, you know, even when he's talking to uh, Alan Dean Foster about writing Split of the Mind's Eye, Lucas mm-hmm. is saying that Vader's a bit of a weak villain and he doesn't, you know, huh. it doesn't really seem dangerous. And he's only that actually... in the banking scene in the Marvel <laughs> comics where they go to the banking planet, the most prosaic... <laughs> <laughs> oh god the things they do to vader at that point oh terrible yeah he was kind of a comedy character and he's only in the original movie for roughly 10 minutes uh yeah. which we all forget well actually chris speaking of splinter of the mind's eye that was also sort of an insurance policy you said in case the first movie didn't do well yeah if if it did just okay just enough so that that lucas could scrape together enough money to make a, a bare bones sequel uh, he wanted to have a story in place because he'd had such a horrible time writing the story for the original Star Wars. So that was the instructions he gave Alan Dean Foster was, you know, write me a story that can become a very cheap movie. Uh, and when Foster wrote this first chapter that had this giant space battle in it, Lucas came back and said, no, cut that chapter. You know, let's just go straight to this fog shrouded planet, you know, because that's cheap and, you know, don't have Han Solo in it because we don't have Harrison Ford signed up yet. You know, it was really, it was, you know, it was all business considerations. Um, and you mentioned, uh, killing off Darth Vader and the Emperor. And, and you said this other thing that really struck me is you said that the toy sales really dropped off after Return of the Jedi because Darth Vader and the Emperor were dead and the story was kind of over. And, you know, it's like you kind of have to have a big cliffhanger in order to boost your toy sales. You know what I mean? I'm sure I'm not the only one who who desperately tried as a kid. I mean, I was I was about 12 years old uh, when Return of the Jedi came out and, and desperately tried to come up with some structure for for, for playtime with these figures, you know, and, uh, and my solution, which, you know, I later found that they replicated in, in, uh, Dark Empire in the comic books was to, to say that the Emperor had been cloned, uh, you know, and <laughs> so the, the jeopardy was not over. The Empire was not over, but it was really hard. And, you know, Brian, I'm not sure what, what your experience was with, well, with the toys, but I actually, you know, it's funny you bring that up. Um, I, Kenner attempted to continue the line, and this is, you know, so they came out with Power of the Force, which was what they released right after Jedi, and it was 17 figures, and it was just some stuff that hadn't been done, slightly different sculpts, um, but it was kind of continuing the along what they were doing. But the big thing that never happened that they tried to do is they tried to put together a whole new line of Star Wars based on a whole new story that was basically generated in-house in Kenner, and they had ships, they had figures and characters and all sorts of stuff um i did see the a lot of the preliminary designs i saw a lot of the 
sort of photos of models and mock-ups and things that they put together to pitch to Lucasfilm. And it was amazing. I mean, it would have been so much fun to have as a little kid. But Lucasfilm said, no, we don't want to do it. And I was talking to Sansweet, and he told me that sort of Lucasfilm's attitude was, let's put this all to rest for a while. Um, and whether it's because they knew they'd bring it back or whether they just sort of, again, you know, going back to, he was a smart businessman, George Lucas. He really knew what he was doing. And I think they recognized if we let this thing sort of drop for a while, it could maybe have some legs down the road or we move on to something different. I mean, I don't know, but I know that, you know, once Jedi happened, you can't market a line of toys as no matter how big it is. Once the property is gone, um, it becomes much more difficult. Kenner thought they had a solution by coming up with all new ideas, but didn't fly with Lucasfilm. If you don't have the license, then you don't get to do it. Well, the, the ideas that they came up with was sort of, you know, it's interesting because it shows that even they were having a hard time, uh, kind of, you know, following on from Return of the Jedi. Uh, so I believe that this is correct, that they had, uh, Tarkin escape the Death Star <laughs> at the last minute. And, I hadn't heard that part. Wow. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and they and they wanted to introduce the clones as well, right? Is this this sort of keeps popping up throughout Star Wars history that everyone who is not George Lucas uh, wants to explain what the Clone Wars were before we finally found out what what Lucas's explanation was, and it sort of made sense that he kept telling them no. But it's amazing that for all these years he kept the Clone Wars to himself, and he resisted all temptations to say, you know, uh, go off and write a Clone Wars novel. Or, uh, I mean, Timothy Zahn, author of Air to the, the Empire, originally wanted to have an insane clone of Obi-Wan Kenobi in, uh, in that book, uh, which became a different character. But, you know, but that was the original idea. Everyone was fascinated by this notion of the Clone Wars. What are the clones? Uh, Kenna seems to have been no exception in that. I didn't want to know what it was as a kid. I loved the idea. I loved the idea of it. I didn't want to know what it was. I loved the idea that it was this thing that happened and shape the history of these characters. And that's kind of all I needed to know. I thought the mystery of it, because I figured there were millions of things that had happened that I didn't know about because, you know, you have this whole galaxy and lots of stuff happens. And that was just one of them. So I love the kind of throwaway. That's what made Star Wars so great. The cantina scene is all about the throwaway shot. Oh, here's an alien. Here's an alien. Here's an alien. Well, that's what played into the toys. That's what led to the success of the toys. By not defining what these things are, it lets kids do anything with them. And to me, the Clone Wars was kind of the same way. I could grab my, my, you know, my friend had a walrus head figure. I had a walrus head figure. Well, I guess they're clones. <laughs> we both have them. Because I don't know what this thing is, but it must have been something cool. So what can we do with it as kids? And I don't even remember what we did. But um, so I always thought that was cool that he kept it undefined. You know, that, that's actually genius. Yeah. I, I hadn't I don't thought know if about that's that. That's what he intended, but it, was, <laughs> it made me buy multiple figures. So good job, George. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah, you should have dropped a few more hints that the Clone Wars just basically cloned every character in the Kenner line. <laughs> <laughs> just go buy they multiple copies. Kid. Yodas. Well, if they do, I mean, you know, uh, Hasbro says this today that the the Stormtrooper is the most well, he's he's the second most popular after Vader uh, figure. Oh, of course, because, army building. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you notice, there are very few human characters. You know, we talked about, like, well, it's just another Chewbacca, it's just another whatever. What I always heard is that Kenner looked for the aliens, looked for the robots, looked for the weird creatures, because, you know, there's, 
the only humans they released in the beginning, I mean, okay, I guess out of the 12, they released a bunch of humans, but the only one that's not a main character is the Death Squad commander. Um, everything else is a robot or something in a weird suit or an alien, and then the main characters. And if you look at the bulk of the line, it's made up of aliens, because I think kids, you know, you have a human, it's like, oh, he's a human in a costume, who cares? Oh, well, I have this thing, you know, I have Akbar, he's a Mon Calamari, which is the dumbest name ever, but <laughs> an awesome figure and this weird alien, and I don't know what it is, and, you know, the whole expanded universe hadn't been written yet, so it could be anything, and that's, you know, had to have helped. It had to have played a huge impact on the success of the toys. See, how did the Ewok toys sell? Because I think Chris <laughs> says in his book that George, George Lucas just, he like insisted that they do him just because he wanted one to give to his kid or something like that. The the funny thing about the Ewoks, so, man, Ewoks, you know, I would, I wish they had stuck with the plan to make them Wookiees. That would have been so awesome. I, I have so many problems with Jedi and Ewoks that I, I'm hesitant to venture too deep into this conversation without becoming, like, full of nerd rage. But it is interesting that a friend of mine who I interviewed for the film, um, Alex Miller, he goes, you know, we used to look at the back of the cards and we see all these figures and think, oh, these are awesome. Well, the Ewoks were blacked out. Um, so was Yoda originally. Lucas didn't want to let people know who they were until the movie revealed them. And this guy, Alex Miller, said, you know, we thought, oh, the Ewoks are blacked out. They must be awesome. That's before we knew any better. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm going to leave this one on Alex's shoulders and let you read into that however you choose. But all I know is I didn't have any as a kid, and I didn't feel like I was missing out. Well, we, we should probably point out that the, uh, the, the whole thing about Wookiees, you know, sort of originally is supposed to be Wookiees, that actually goes way back to the first draft of the Star Wars, as it was then, uh, in which the, the Wookiees blew up the Death Star in, in single man fighters. So those, those uh, X-Wing attack scenes, they were originally designed to uh, contain Wookiees, which would have had a slightly different uh, dialogue. As the, as the start there, but but that was that was as far as it ever got. I mean, but by long before Return of the Jedi, Lucas realized that he couldn't end the movie that way uh, because the Wookiees were now so smart that they couldn't be primitives anymore. You know, right, right. Course, they they fly starships, so it was always supposed to be Ewoks. Uh, you know, oh, really? Even, yeah, the rumor is just a rumor. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, so uh, but they, they were originally Ewoks. I think that was the original spelling. Well, that makes it much better. <laughs> and you also had the, the Yuzums. You, you've heard of these guys? They, they were basically, you know, these, these, uh, long-legged creatures, sort of very dark crystal style, uh, kind of, you know, as tall as the Ewoks were short kind of creatures, but they, they never ended up in the film. Yeah. They, maybe uh, they would have made it. They're not Hoojibs, the, uh, <laughs> telepathic rabbit creatures. From the books. <laughs> oh, I'm not making this stuff up, man. That that would be Jackson, right? <laughs> there is is that Jackson? That's Jackson the Green no, Rabbit. No, uh, who jibs? Well, anyway, look it up. You'll find them. They're <laughs> they're interesting. Let's see, Chris. You mentioned the Tim Zahn books, and it was interesting in your book. You said that when those these were proposed to Lucas, he said that no one was going to buy these books, but he said go ahead and do them anyway. How do you have any idea how they sold? Was were the books? Did the books ever bring in any significant amount of revenue to help support the movies in the way that the toys did? Well, they certainly showed that the the fandom was was alive and well. I mean, the uh, uh, As the Empire became a New York Times number one bestseller for one week only, and it did take a while to get there, unlike uh, the way 
Lucasfilm generally remembers it, but um, but still, no, it was a huge hit. It went through multiple printings. Uh, it didn't fund the next movies, uh, but it did. It did, you know, get, get everyone at Lucasfilm very excited, and and did suggest that there was still an audience out there. And and it was shortly after that that Lucas decides to go and uh, to go and start writing the prequels, which which came first, you know, before he announced the special editions. He was actually already at, at work on the prequels. So yeah, not not a huge financial thing. That they could have been. I mean, they, you know, he talked to a very aggrieved uh, editor. Uh, Lou Aronica, who was the guy who actually came up with the idea for Heir to the Empire in the first place, uh, and wrote to Lucasfilm and didn't hear anything back for a year. Um, but he, he suggested they really should have made these books an annual event. You know, so instead of releasing all of these sort of lower grade, uh, you know, straight to paperback kind of editions just to try to maximize their profits, that you really do this event book every year and you have everyone looking forward to it and you almost treat it as if it's a movie. Um, and, uh, you know, he thinks that they could have been a New York Times number one bestseller every time out of the gate. Uh, you know, whereas now they sort of, you know, maybe they graze the bottom of the bestseller list, but they're just, they're, they're much more pulpy than he originally imagined them to be. Yeah, it's funny because he, he talks about how, doing one book a year, and then within a surprisingly short amount of time, they're putting out something like twenty-two books a year. Yes, you know, that was that was the high watermark for sure. <laughs> Every person I interviewed, though, pointed to those books as the kind of return um, to their love of Star Wars, their realization that this thing is not dead. Um, mm. Now, granted, the twenty-five or so people I interviewed do not equal <laughs> the you know millions necessary to make a bestseller book or whatever the number is. But I did find it interesting that every single one of them, it was like, and they all had the same sort of experience. They'd walk into the bookstore and do 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 do. Whoa, what is that? And I remember having the same experience myself. Like Star Wars, new Star what? Like my brain couldn't process it, and I couldn't buy. And it was in hardcover, so it was like a you know, a $12 book or whatever hardcovers were yeah. at the time. And I was like, how do I pay for this? You know, maybe I'll steal it. And I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's fine. I begged my mom, but she was like, oh, you want to buy a book? Okay, fine. It was, it was priced. It was priced super cheap for, for, uh, frugal readers. And I think only Dr. Seuss's book was the only cheaper one on the, on the hardback list at the time. But it really, oh, yeah. I mean, I mean it was me as a, yeah. Whatever old I was, it, it jumped over. Oh, the places you'll go to become number one. Um, and <laughs> true fact. Um, but no, it's it's interesting because it did. It was the book that finally solved that problem that we were talking about. How do you continue Return of the Jedi? And everyone else had failed. You know, Kenner had failed in their proposal for how to do this. Uh, all those kids playing with their toys had failed. Uh, and, and, you know, Zahn is the guy who did it. And, and part of the reason that he did it, he sort of retroactively inserted Mara Jade into the plot of Return of the Jedi and had her, you know, hanging out in the shadows in, uh, in Jabba's palace. Well, I think it gets that idea also of letting the whole property rest for a while. You know, the people were, they were a little bit older. So you suddenly have a little bit of nostalgia. It becomes this thing that had a chance to kind of ferment on its own so that when you do come out with something, it's for every, even if it wasn't a big event in the big picture, for every person, it was the biggest event of the year. For every individual, it was this moment 
where everyone remembers where they were when they saw that book, what bookstore they were in, what time it was, everything, because we hadn't realized we'd been waiting for it, yeah. but we'd been waiting for it. And it's interesting, of course, you know, Star Wars movies are famous for, for waiting three years in, in between each one. Yeah. And, and it does, you know, it creates this artificial scarcity. And Star Wars has always been about artificial scarcity right from the start when they had, you know, the movie come out in 32 theaters, therefore creating long lines that created great media stories that created even longer lines. You know, that wouldn't was have that happened. artificial though, or was that just the reality of? who was going to release i mean i'm asking i i don't know I, like a lot of this stuff it was just it just sort of happened by accident but turned out to be a, a very happy accident and they kind of repeated it for empire i mean lucas was very insistent that for empire strikes back it would only come out in 70 millimeters for the first week which means that only a limited number of theaters could show it i think empire only launched in a hundred uh theaters in the first week which isn't an awful lot considering the amount of excitement but yeah, so you have this every three-year cycle uh, to kind of build up interest and, you know, the idea that one one book a year should come out. And it's interesting because one of the first things people ask me about the sequel trilogy that we're about to get is, you know, I mean, Disney's planning to bring, to bring out a Star Wars movie every year. Um, and there's sort of this instinctive feeling that we have that that's too much. That is too much Star Wars. It doesn't have that feeling of scarcity. Well, I mean, you say in the book, uh, Chris, that part of the reason that uh, Lucas took so long putting out Star Wars movies is because he was risking his entire fortune every time he made one, and he was pretty much psychologically destroyed by the process of making each one. Yeah, yeah, he was putting his own movie into it, his his own money into it, sorry, and also the, the sweat of his brow, and he was such an extreme perfectionist that he was always adding special effects shots, even once the movie was, was already in theaters which sort of, you know, all, all these uh, special edition haters say that, you know, oh, uh, you know, George Lucas just suddenly decided in 1997 to start retroactively changing his movies and squeezing in new scenes. No, he was doing that. He was doing that in 1977. I thought it was so interesting reading the book because I, I personally would look at the special editions as just utterly inexplicable. Like, why would you add all this terrible stuff to these movies? But it makes a little bit more sense if you look at it in terms of like R and D for the um for the prequels, right? Because he's sort of like this is a way he can fund the testing out of these computer graphics because he he tests out the computer graphics in the special editions and then sells them to people and then it kind of pays for itself. And that makes it a little bit more explicable to me. Explicable, but forgivable. <laughs> no, 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 never, never, not certainly not forgivable, but explicable, yeah. Well, it's 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 amazing, Chris. I mean, in the in the book, you talk about this underworld show that was in development, which was sort of like the Sopranos set in the Star Wars universe, and it sounds amazingly cool. And like, I just want to watch it so much. And then you hear about George Lucas coming in and saying, "This needs more speeder bike chases and more pod races, and like the stuff he wants to do is so expensive that even with this billions of dollars, he can't mm -hmm. afford to do it still." And it's just like, oh my god, it just blows your mind that you know. He just wants, <laughs> like, how many speeder bike chases do you need? Yeah, yeah. And that was sort of the, the first um, example that, that I heard of within Lucasfilm of um, Episode 7 cropping up as, as a possibility, as in, you know, Lucas saying, well, hey, we could make Episode 7 and that might actually fund this expensive TV show that we want to do. And it didn't actually go anywhere but at, at that time, but it definitely, the, the seed was sown at that point. Hmm. I mean, what do you guys think of this whole Disney acquiring Star Wars just from a 
a business point of view. There's there's this funny line, Chris, in, in your book where you talk about how uh, Lucas almost sees Disney as like Asimov's foundation, that this is the the entity that's going to keep Star Wars alive for a thousand years, that when we're all dead, Disney's still going to be preserving Star Wars. Yeah, I, I definitely, I, I you know, I, I sort of got, at the end of the book, I talked to NASA people who who uh, who all love Star Trek better, but you know that that's that's their business. Um, but you know, I definitely wanted to have this notion that we could still be watching Star Wars movies when we're actually out there uh, inhabiting the stars. Um, you know, in hundreds or even thousands of years' time, it has that timeless mythical quality. And indeed, that that is what Lucas w- was always aiming for. He has said on several occasions, um, that he hopes the first person on Mars, you know, plants the American flag there, whatever flag it's going to be, and, and says, uh, you know, I did this because uh, I wanted to see if there's a Wookiee here. Uh, or, you know, he's rendered that different ways in different occasions. Or, you know, I think most recently it's like, I, I did this because I really like Star Wars or whatever. But he wants to inspire space exploration. Weird Al, years ago, wrote, you know, a spoof of the song, the kink song, Lola, Yoda. And in it, he has, from Luke's point of view, he writes, uh, one of the lyrics is, but I know that I'll be coming back someday. I'll be playing this part till I'm old and gray. The long-term contract I had to sign says I'll be making these movies till the end of time. He wrote that, you know, it refers to Empire, and, you know, Mark Hamill was out of the picture a few years later, and yet here he is back again. You know what I mean? It's like, Kenner's old slogan, Star Wars is Forever, was more more prescient than I think anyone really imagined. And Disney is probably just going to strengthen that idea. Yeah, and, and here he is, by the way. I, I think it was uh, very recently that, that Mark Hamill just passed the age that Alec Guinness was in the, in the <laughs> original movie. He uh, looks great with the beard, yeah. and he looks like <laughs> a freaking Jedi master. I'm like, any. I have many... Like everyone, I've got many doubts about episode seven and whatever. But when I see that picture, I'm like, you know, six years old again. I'm like, sign me up. That's awesome looking. So yeah, I mean, the, here's the thing about Disney: it really does know how to treat property. I mean, look at what it's done with Marvel, and look at what it's done with Pixar. Look at look at what it's done with the Muppets, for that matter. Um, the, I mean, one one would hope that this is sort of in Disney's DNA now, and it's not just uh, Bob Iger and his leadership because he's you know, set to retire at some point in the next uh, five years or so. But uh, but no, I, I think they get it now. I think they get that if you just leave the creative guys to go away and do their own thing, they'll come up with something that's extremely bankable. Um, Guided, I, though. Yeah. You know, Marvel keeps a pretty tight control over their movies. Um, the directors are allowed to kind of do their thing within very specific restrictions in terms of how they handle the characters and stuff. But maybe that's the key, you know? I mean, maybe that's it. You you keep a strong guiding force, but within that, you say, well, look, it's got to touch these six points, but how you get to them and how you deal with them is up to you. And that's the, that's the interesting maybe thing. That's of, what works. That's the interesting thing about Lucasfilm and the, the new uh, Lucasfilm story group that they've got set up there to, to coordinate all these properties and to make sure that, you know, the new uh, Rebels TV show does not... 
contradict anything that's coming up in the sequels or, uh, you know, the books are intertwined. And basically it's, it's a committee of nerds that is, you know, the, the, the point of which is to, uh, is to coordinate all these properties together. So it is a, it, it's a very Marvel like, uh, uh, approach to this, uh, with, with the blessing of Disney. So they, they definitely seem to be going about it the right way. All right, cool. So there's just one other thing I really wanted to mention, which is that you say in the book that Lucas or that ILM and its subcontractors were charging eighty thousand dollars to create an R2 unit, and fans will do it for ten thousand. And they're actually using a fan-made R2 for the new movies. Um, and is like, given how expensive these movies are to create, is is sort of this crowdsourcing of all the <laughs> as many of the effects as possible. Is that the future for creating? Star Wars movies. Are we going to kickstart episode eight? <laughs> <laughs> that would be, yeah. Oh, I better get my prop blaster in the mail for my contribution. <laughs> yeah, definitely. You know, you, you'll have uh, half of the extras in episode eight will be people who signed on to the Kickstarter. Um, <laughs> no, $50, you get to be an extra. I, I thought that was a genius move on the part of uh, Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams to use the, the R2 Builders Club, uh, which, you know, if, if folks don't know, it, it, it is this uh, club of about, I think, about seven or 8,000 people around the planet who are all endeavoring to build a screen-accurate, functional R2-D2. Uh, you know, and I've seen a number of their R2-D2s. They, they are just gorgeous. And everyone flocks to them. They go to make a fair events and, you know, people just love it. But it does take an awful long time to do. But then, then again, you know, 7,000 people, that, that's, that's a very powerful fan base to have on your side. So yeah, a they're, they're they're better constructed than the the ILM versions, and they don't go racing off and crashing into walls and losing their dome as as they used to. <laughs> um, but but also simultaneously, it's a way to ingratiate yourself with Phantom. So absolutely genius business move, and I wouldn't be surprised if we if we see more of that. All right, cool. So that's uh, pretty much all the time that we have. Um, just to wrap things up, uh, do you guys want to just talk about, you know, your book or movie or any other projects you want to mention? So, uh, so Brian, why don't you just tell us a little bit about how to find Plastic Galaxy and is there any anything else that you're up to that you want people to know about? Uh, sure. Plastic Galaxy, um, like I said, it's a history of Star Wars toys. You can find copies of the DVD on Amazon with all sorts of extras and you can also find it on iTunes and Amazon Streaming and all these other streaming sites um an hd version ooh hd that was that was fancy for me um but uh yeah nothing else i'm really working on right now i mean we're in the thick of marketing the film and everything else and um other ideas for documentaries are floating around in my head but i haven't haven't picked anything quite yet so um we'll be at celebration though so if anyone wants to come by and and suggest some cool ideas for movies please feel free mm. And uh, I highly endorse Plastic Galaxy, by the way. Great documentary. Thank you. And Thank you. Uh, I highly endorse Chris's book. <laughs> uh, I mean, no, it's awesome. So whatever. Dude knows more than I do. Bug <laughs> him if you have your questions. Don't come to me. <laughs> I, I will happily. Sorry, uh, that, that's okay. I'll, I'll be your firewall. Uh, so yeah, so I, I will learn. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so how Star Wars conquered the universe is available in all good bookstores. Uh, it's on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble. It's at your local independent bookseller. Uh, you can find out many places to buy it at uh, howstarwarsconquered.com. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter for for all my latest uh, Mashable stuff and uh, Star Wars related ramblings. 
Uh, and that is Future Boy on Twitter. Oh man, see you're see I'm learning from you. We do have a website I should probably mention: plasticgalaxymovie.com. Okay, that's it. <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm like the worst at self promotion. I forget we have a website. <laughs> All right, well, I promised to let Chris go like a couple of minutes ago, so I uh, should probably wrap this up there. But so, uh, guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. And that was our panel. So a big thanks again to Chris Taylor and Brian Stillman for joining us as guests. And, of course, big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Peter Byrne in Canada, who writes... This is simply one of the best podcasts I've ever listened to on any topic. Dave is a great interviewer. He always takes the interviewee and their work seriously, obviously does plenty of research, and asks in-depth questions which make every interview worth listening to, even, or especially, if you're not already familiar with the author slash creator. And the Guest Geek panels achieve something a lot of other podcasts aspire to but struggle with. Spontaneous discussion which is always fun and sometimes hilarious, but still structured and easy to listen to. Like the interviews, the panels never fail to take their topics seriously, which is really refreshing. I'd strongly recommend this podcast to anyone with geekish leanings, or to anyone, really. So a big thanks again to Peter Byrne for that great review. Peter also just became the latest listener to be making monthly contributions to the show, so another huge thank you to Peter Byrne for that. This episode was also made possible thanks to support from listeners such as Abigail Drake, Wes Weathersby, Nick Suffolk, Jason Lind, Laura Dirks, and Jonathan Jeloni. So thanks, guys. We really appreciate it. To learn more, visit us at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. And if you live in the New York area, you should come out and meet Jeff Vandermeer, our guest from episode 103, at Barnes & Noble in Tribeca on November 23rd. To learn more, follow Geeks Guide NYC on Twitter. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.